Hi, welcome. You're listening to What Cries Out. I'm Cassandra, the daughter. And I'm Diane, the mom. We want to again thank you guys for listening to us. It's our once a month episode, as usual. Yes, it is. And if you guys are interested in following us on Instagram, you can follow What Cries Out. And we get a lot of requests for certain episodes. So go ahead and message me there. I'm the one who usually takes care of it. The marketing and the media. <laughs> I just respond to messages. So. <laughs> You're the marketing and media exec. Oh, wow. Thanks. CEO. <laughs> I work in the background. <laughs> yes. We really have a good balance going. We so. do. We do. And just so our listeners know, I do get a lot of messages through Spotify where you guys engage and give me questions there. And to be honest, I don't have the ability to respond to all the questions that we get. That's just the honest thing. I have had a lot of people who've reached out, acknowledged our research and the data and the community that we have reached. So many positive, great interactions with people who do the same thing in line of work that we do. I mean, we appreciate any communication, any criticism. We love engaging with our listeners. So continue to do so. Just remember that I might not always respond to every single thing. But we thank you guys for listening to us and, as usual, engaging with us. And we love our listeners. You guys are absolutely amazing. Yes, we wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you guys. Yes, so thank you. Let's begin. There is a Latin expression, res ipsa locator, meaning the thing speaks for itself, or literally, the thing itself speaks. And I can't help but see this being exactly what what cries out stands for. This expression is common in law where the facts make it self-evident that negligence or other responsibility lies within a party. Therefore, it is not necessary to provide extraneous details since it is so painfully obvious. This is vital for us to understand when it comes to the context of this case. A case that has so many layers of evil, the evil and darkness of one of the most prolific modern serial killers you will hear about. But that is just one angle, because we are not only talking about a monster here, but a monster who was enabled and protected under the guise of reputation and responsibility. Lucy Letby is the painfully obvious thing that speaks for itself. You just need to have eyes to see. Welcome to episode 36, Lucy Letby, I Am Evil. Lucy Letby was born on January 4th, 1990 in Hereford, Herefordshire, to both her parents, John and Susan Letby. She had what was called a beige upbringing, a rather ordinary childhood, one that would be standard and probably reflect a lot of her own. She is an only child with no apparent trauma or character-altering experience, but the only defining moment of her life that I believe is relevant to this case would be that Letby herself had a traumatic birth, which fueled her desire to become a nurse. Childhood friends spoke on how determined and focused she was in this being her ultimate goal. She attended school at Islestone School and Hereford Sixth Form College before beginning her nursing education at the University of Chester. Letby was known to be quite awkward, but many who knew her later on commented on how nice she was. She later received two training placements in late 2012 and early 2015 at the Liverpool Women's Hospital before she qualified for infant care in 2015, thus beginning work at the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital. This is where she was known as Kind Lucy and where our story begins. The Countess of Chester Hospital 
NHS Foundation Trust includes the Countess of Chester Hospital, a 550-bed hospital which provides the full range of acute and specialist services and employs over 5,200 staff located in Cheshire, England. It's a city full of cathedral architecture and historical heritage. It's honestly beautiful, but there are flaws everywhere you go. The National Health Service, or NHS for short, is a foundation trust that boasts on patient care. Their vision and statement being, our plan is about our patients. It is about delivering the best clinical outcomes, exceeding expectations of our patients in terms of the experience they receive, using all of our resources at our disposal well, and supporting our staff to deliver this by being a valued employer. So you guys can kind of see where we're kind of going with this episode. I think we're going to have a very interesting dynamic that kind of occurs here. Is there anything that pops out to you in this? Nothing really. Maybe just more about her childhood, really briefly, that Lucy was an only child. So her parents didn't have any other children, so she had no siblings. And I heard also through research that her parents were quite overbearing. Yeah. They were considered what is called helicopter parents. Yeah, so as you guys can kind of see, though, her, it's not spectacular. There's nothing to really say why she is the way she is. It's the word beige. Yeah, I mean, being a helicopter parent, you know, doesn't turn you into a serial killer, <laughs> exactly. obviously. How many parents are helicopter parents? Oh, yeah, exactly. Before we get into today's episode, I did want to review a few medical terms for our listeners. As you guys know, neither of us have a medical background, so there is that barrier, and because of this case, as complex as it is, we tried our best. The first expression you're going to hear a lot with each case is the term collapse. In the medical field, the term collapse can refer to different conditions depending on the context. For example, syncope, a brief loss of consciousness caused by a temporary decrease in blood flow to the brain. And then there's circulatory collapse a state of extreme physical depression resulting from circulatory failure, great loss of body fluids or heart disease, and occurring terminally in diseases such as cholera, typhoid fever, and ammonia. And then there's also a spontaneous lung collapse or induced surgically to an airless state. And it is important to note that these are just a few scenarios and that collapse can have other meanings depending on the context. And we can't get into each one for the sake of time, but to be clear, collapses are usually expected beforehand by medical professionals, especially in the NICU. But if they are unexpected, typically have a medical explanation later on. Next is the term NICU. It is an acronym for the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. It is a hospital ward designed to provide intensive care to dangerously ill or premature newborn babies. Our last definition, and probably one of the most important roles, in my opinion, in any hospital, would be the term trust committee and executives, which you will hear more about throughout the episode. It is, in layman's term, the review board for Countess of Chester Hospital, and where Lucy Letby is later staffed as a nurse in the NICU. A trust committee in a hospital is a group of people who are responsible for overseeing the management of the hospital. The committee is usually made up of people from different backgrounds, including medical professionals, administrators, and community members. The primary role of the trust committee is to ensure that the hospital is providing high-quality care 
to its patients and that it is operating in an ethical and financially responsible manner. Some specific duties include engaging with the community, developing policies and procedures, the hiring and evaluating of staff, and of course, overseeing hospital operations. Okay, so we got that out of the way. (laughs) I really think it was good to kind of clarify some of these terms. Our listeners, take a breath. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) I need to take a breath. I know. Before we begin, I have to give a major shout out to a lot of the individuals and leads at Countess of Chester Hospital who absolutely refuse to be bullied and give up. I mean, they're all anonymous, but we have to take that moment to just acknowledge that they were there. We're going to talk about Operation Hummingbird. And Operation Hummingbird is a police investigation that began in May of 2017 after a number of baby deaths and non-fatal collapses began occurring at the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Detective Superintendent Aaron Dugan was the lead investigator of Operation Hummingbird, supporting a large group involving nearly 70 officers and staff, ranging from a dedicated team of detectives, civilian investigators, and police colleagues who were given the sole focus to investigate the alarming and unexplained deaths or near-fatal incidents. Senior Investigating Officer Paul Hughes was quoted stating, the initial focus was around the hypothesis of what could have occurred. So generic hypothesis of it could be natural occurring deaths, it could be natural occurring collapses, it could be an organic reason, it could be a virus, and then one of the hypotheses was that obviously it could be inflicted harm. And through their findings, which included nearly 32,000 pages of evidence and medical records, the investigation revealed the one commonality, which led to the arrest and conviction of serial killer Lucy Levy. And the irony is it revealed deep cracks of a trust committee that failed to do, well, anything. The Hippocratic Oath. And what is that? It states, I swear to uphold specific ethical standards including treating patients to the best of my ability, preserving patient privacy, and teaching the secrets of medicine to the next generation. So do all medical professionals take the Hippocratic Oath? It's not like this actual one oath that they take. It's more of a general way they're taught. Does that make sense? And then when they graduate, there is an acknowledgement of the Hippocratic Oath. But it does vary per hospital and graduation and whatever. So it's not something like in court where you're sworn in. Yeah, it's not like, like a sworn you, in. Okay. It's not as cool as that. It's not from Grey's Anatomy where they all I are. Always, yeah, I always thought that, you know, maybe there's like a group of them. Once they get their degree or whatever, that they all get sworn in. I'm not going to ruin it for people. They absolutely still do it, guys. <laughs> okay. They may or may not anymore. It just depends. Okay. So Diana and I are going to discuss what took place once Operation Hummingbird was aware of the details and what they uncovered. We will discuss four incidents that took place between 2015 and 2016. With each incident, we will discuss several NICU victims. And afterward, we will discuss what the Trust Committee Review Board did as a result and the actions that were well taken. I hope our listeners see that the focus is on Lucy Letby primarily, but finish off with her being enabled by the very board that was designed and entrusted for times like this. We're going to discuss child A, B, C, and D here. On June 8, 2015, was the first confirmed suspicious case where roughly at 8 p.m., 
a healthy baby boy, a twin, was cared for in the nursery ward where the nurse on staff was Lucy Leppy, set for beginning her night shift. The boy began to deteriorate 26 minutes later, and the baby died half an hour later, less than 90 minutes into Leppy's shift. The pediatric register, who left after Letby's shift began, later testified that when she heard about the death of the child, the next day after returning to work, that it was a big surprise and completely out of the blue and very upsetting. She was also quoted saying, I had no concerns at all for him or his twin sister. There was also a witness in the staff who claimed to have seen Letby standing over the infant's incubator and not intervene resulting in a nurse who stepped in when she realized he was not recovering under Letby's care. Doctors attending the scene said that child A developed an unusual blue and white modeling on his skin after collapsing, which they said they have never seen before, which appears later on with several other cases. The signs consistent of being injected with air. After child A's death, Letby searched for his parents on Facebook. Less than 28 hours later, child B, his twin sister, also collapsed and had to be resuscitated. Tests later showed that child B had been injected with air, just like child A, since the child had the same unusual rash on her skin as her twin also had, not even one day later. A few days later, child C, a boy in good condition, died. He was under the care of another designated nurse on staff but it was witnessed that Leppy was seen standing over his monitor as his alarm sounded as a nurse came back in. Leppy was reminded that baby C was not her patient and the shift leader testified that Leppy had to be pulled away from the family room as child C was deteriorating. The parents later claimed a nurse they believed to be Leppy came in with a ventilator basket and said, you've said your goodbyes, do you want me to put him in here? To say the parents were put through unnecessary pain is an understatement. Our last baby for this incident occurred on June 22, 2015, when a baby girl known as Child D collapsed three times in the early morning hours and died. Those who attempted to save the child noticed the girl's skin had been discolored. A post-mortem x-ray showed a striking line of gas in front of the spine, consistent with air being injected into the bloodstream. The mother of the baby girl had noted Letby appeared to linger near the family hours before the baby collapsed. After the incident that took place in June of 2015, concerns were raised to the trust committee by the neonatologist of Countess Chester Hospital, which failed to be taken to an official review, and therefore the neonatologist reached out to a consultant to perform their own review of the four collapses that happened that same month. They sent their findings to the trust committee. On July 2, 2015, a doctor later on also raised his concerns over the sudden collapses and deaths. No action was taken against Letby, and the trust committee never performed their own review, nor paid any heed to the provided reviews. The suspicious cases stopped for roughly a month. And so this takes us to Incident 2, where we will discuss child E, F, G, and I here. On August 4, 2015, a mother walked into the unit to give her baby boy, child E, his milk, only to find Letby apparently in the process of attacking the child. She found the baby severely distressed, with Letby standing over, faffing around, not doing anything, and wanting to look busy but not actually doing anything. 
The boy later died after suffering a fatal bleed, which was believed to have been the cause of death with the injection of air. To say he suffered is an understatement. The next evening, Child E's twin brother, Child F, was being cared for in a nearby nursery, in the same room in which Letby was looking after another infant. In the late hours, Child F suffered an unexpected drop in his blood sugar and saw a surge in his heart rate. The child survived and a blood test later revealed that he had been given an extremely high amount of insulin, which he had never needed, nor any child in the nursery at that time. The insulin was kept in a locked fridge, so you can see the obvious lack of coincidence there. Letby later searched for the parents of child E and F on social media in the weeks and months that followed. After this incident, those who worked closely with Letby continued to make their feelings known as Letby continued to work in the NICU unit, including a lead consultant, but they were dismissed. On September 7, 2015, Child G celebrated their 100th day of being alive, and the nurses had put up banners and along with a cake for her parents to celebrate and mark the day. What was supposed to be a celebration milestone ended up marking the next three weeks, where she suffered a total of three collapses. One specifically occurred after Letby had been feeding her just 15 minutes prior. The baby was witnessed projectile vomiting so massively that it reached the chair next to the hospital bed and plastic canopy. Her heart rate and oxygen levels also dropped, but the doctor and staff never witnessed such a vomiting fit. An expert witness concluded that the only viable explanation for the baby vomiting so extraordinarily was if she had received far more milk than that was allocated down her feeding tube, and that this had to occur intentionally. The child survived, but now lives with a severe disability after this incident. Charts later revealed that Letby had deliberately altered the baby's temperature on her to make it seem like she was already unwell, along with falsifying records of the baby's actual collapse, like the timeline was fuzzy. A nurse noticed that when she arrived after Letby's cry for help, after one of the baby girl's collapses, that the machine connected to the baby to measure its oxygen saturations and heart rate levels had been turned off. Unfortunately, there was some miscommunication here about the child's monitors being turned off by other doctors, which did result in much confusion. About six weeks after Child G's multiple collapses, on October 23rd, 2015, another baby known as Child I died after collapsing for the fourth time. On the fourth collapse, Lepi was found next to her incubator by another nurse. Scans also showed later that Child I was found to have excessive air in her stomach, which affected her breathing. A doctor saw unusual skin modeling on the child's skin and x-rays showed a massively enlarged stomach consistent with deliberate injection of air. Letby later on sent a sympathy card to the baby's parents and voiced desires to attend the funeral. The child's mother said Letby smiled as she bathed her dead daughter and offered to take a photo of the dead child. So weird. A pattern was beginning to emerge with Letby later searching for Child Eye's mother on Facebook. So what do you make of Lucy Letby searching for the dead baby's parents on Facebook? What's that all about? I think clearly it's to see the suffering and any damage that would be, I guess, apparent. I mean, just that invasion of privacy is just alarming. So this takes us to the trust review number two. And this is with numerous staff witnessing the continual trend of Letby's presence and the numerous collapses, specifically the October 23rd collapse of Baby G, 
The ward manager voiced concerns on the exact same day to the hospital management who was alerted to the concerns and of the doctors who were working in the NICU on that specific unit. They were told to not make a fuss. Later on that same month in October, the ward manager actually conducted her own review, noting that Lepi was the only staff member consistently present throughout these incidences of unexplained collapses and deaths. The numerous and tireless requests to management to take these concerns seriously were either resisted by the trust executives or altogether ignored. And by early 2016, the lead neonatologist, along with other consultants, concluded that their own thematic review of the five unexplained deaths and collapses within the NICU. And then their investigation showed again one commonality, Lepi's presence. Their requests for an urgent meeting with executives was finally scheduled But that quote-unquote urgent meeting was scheduled for May of 2016, nearly three months from that time. And just to note, there was a shift change with Lepi at this time, where she was moved from night shifts to the day shifts in 2016. And when these shifts changed, it is important to note that there was a notable increase in the patterns that started to occur in the daytime during Lepi's care, which brings us to the third incident. Now we're going to discuss child L. M and N. On April 9th, 2016, two twin brothers suffered sudden collapses within hours of each other. Tests found that child L had unusually high doses of insulin in his blood, to the point that it was, quote, at the very top of the scale that the equipment was capable of measuring, unquote. Hours later, twin brother child M's heart rate and breathing suddenly dropped and he nearly died. It is believed that child M was injected with air. He survived but suffers with a brain injury. These twins had almost identical methods as child E and F that were discussed earlier, except there was one revealing bit of information. Child F had survived his injection of insulin while child L was given twice the dose of insulin, possibly alluding to the learned nature of Letby in her attempt to ensure death. About four weeks later, we have a confirmed escalation pattern when another baby, known as child N, nearly died after suffering trauma to the throat. It is absolutely heartbreaking what these babies had to endure. Wanna just really quick here, the injury to the throat was her trying to cram something down his throat. Or whether it was a feeding tube, we're not exactly sure because we don't obviously have access to the medical records, but it was clearly painful. Yeah. Yeah. On May 11th, 2016, the suspicious cases finally reached review with the Trust Board of Executives, but their review deemed it to be coincidental with Lepi's presence and no substantial action was taken. Nothing was done. Let that sink in. (sighs) And this takes us to incident four, and we will be discussing child O, P, and a surviving triplet. These are the final two cases we will be discussing, and this is very hard. The two babies involved were triplets, siblings of each other, and the cases occurred between June 23rd to the 24th of 2016. Child O, a perfect, healthy baby, was due to be discharged home, but suddenly collapsed on June 23rd. When the child initially became unwell, another nurse suggested he be moved to a part of the nursery where the sickest children were treated but Letby disagreed and the baby subsequently collapsed less than two hours later. He recovered, but suffered two further collapses and died almost exactly three hours later. 
X-rays postmortem showed he had an abnormal amount of gas in his body and liver damage that an independent pathologist later determined was an impact injury, similar to what could be seen in a car crash. Only 13 minutes after Child O's death, Letby was feeding his triplet brother, Child P, who was also expected to be able to go home soon, collapsed after his diaphragm was somehow shattered. The boy died despite the doctors attempting to get him placed at another hospital. Letby was quoted saying, he's not leaving here alive, is he? X-rays likewise showed an inexplicable amount of gas inside the baby. These deaths have been described as exceptional and the tipping point when the consultants realized that drastic action needed to be taken. The surviving triplet ended up being taken to a different hospital by the same medics who had turned up to take child P, who they thought had been expected to live. The consultant felt that Lepi was a, quote, mortal danger to the surviving triplet. Before the second triplet died, Lepi was texting a doctor saying, I'm okay, just don't want to be here really, hoping I may get the new admissions. On June 24th, 2016, following the deaths of two triplet babies, the lead neonatologist phoned the duty executive demanding that Lepi be removed from the unit. The duty executive insisted that Lepi was safe to work and that she was, quote, happy to take responsibility if anything happened to any more babies under Lepi's care. And then this takes us to the final review. And in June 2016, the executive directors of the trust committee met to discuss whether to involve law enforcement after seven unexpected deaths occurred within the NICU. The directors believed that the evidence against Letby was largely circumstantial and suspected that certain doctors were on a misguided witch hunt. The medical director of Chester Hospital ended up consulting neonatologist Jane Hodden from Great Ormond Street Hospital to carry out the case reviews. Hodden responded she could not conduct a detailed review because of lack of time, but could provide a summary and did so after briefly reviewing the notes. She identified four cases that potentially benefit from a local forensic review as to circumstances, personnel, etc. Despite receiving numerous reviews from those who actually treated the NICU babies and their continued concerns, I find it ironic that they decided to ask an expert out of their hospital only to end up not listening to her either. That's correct. The trust was more concerned of the potential harm and reputation that could result from a police inquiry. Ultimately, they opted for self-preservation and chose not to involve the police. But three weeks later, in July 2016, Lepi was removed from duty and the suspicious collapses stopped. In September 2016, Letby filed a formal complaint about her transfer from clinical duties to the hospital's risk and patient safety office in late June of 2016. The board upheld her complaint in January of 2017, concluding that her removal had been, quote, orchestrated by the consultants with no hard evidence. They supported her return to the neonatal unit and offered her a transfer at Alder Hay Children's Hospital in Liverpool, along with support to continue her advanced practice or pursue a master's degree. The medical director stated in the report that the trust's aim was to protect Lucy Letby from these allegations. On December 22, 2016, the chief executive met with Letby and her parents to apologize on behalf of the trust and assure them that the doctors who made the allegations would be, you know, dealt with. In February 2017, 
the consultant sent a letter of apology to Lepi as ordered by him, which they did. But in March 2017, consultants requested police involvement after receiving advice from the regional neonatal lead, who suggested further investigation was necessary. On April 27, 2017, they met with the Cheshire Constabary to raise their concerns with Letby, scheduled to return to work on May 3, 2017. Yes, you heard that correctly. Letby was set to return to work. The Trust publicly announced police involvement in May 2017, stating that it was to seek assurances that enable us to rule out unnatural causes of death. With Operation Hummingbird, investigator Paul Hughes entered the case with a multitude of possibilities weighing on the team. It was an unbiased effort on whether this was caused by a virus, bad water, or ill intent. Yeah, so I always really, when I was reading the operations prerogative, Operation Hummingbird really came in with a very unbiased approach. They were concerned that it could be you know, the virus, it could be something with the hospital's water, it could be ill intent. They came in really picking apart each case and seeing if there was anything that had commonality. And that's difficult for investigators to do because they're not doctors. Yeah, exactly. You know, so they're having to pick apart and understand medical terminology and understanding hospital protocols and procedures. It's why they had to involve a lot of consultants who were doctors to read through the papers and walk them through what each thing means. Because I can tell you right now, the hospital literally dumped everything to the police. They didn't even offer the help that was needed. It doesn't really surprise me, and we'll talk about that yeah, a little we'll later. Get into that. But do nurses need a level of protection too? Well, yes. I mean, I think you and I were discussing this. Nurses do deal with the injured and the dying, and there is a human aspect to it. There are mistakes that can be made over medication, not reading the injury correctly. And they um, themselves need protection yeah. you know, against disease and. There's, yeah, that human element of family members who are very upset can yeah. become very aggressive. And I think it's important that, for example, the trust committee comes in when, let's say, the nurse has witnessed a traumatic event, something that has affected him or her deeply, right? Well, that trust committee is supposed to come in and say, okay, you take some time off, paid leave while you recover, and we're going to fill in the spot with several nurses in the area, which is why they have a lot of nurses who are traveling nurses. So I don't know exactly what that entails. I'm sure there's people who know. Well, here's another thing, too. In a unit like a neonatal unit or ICU, they do expect a certain number of deaths per yeah, year. they do. Okay. There's an average. But when they start seeing an unusually high amount of deaths than average, then that's when an investigation needs to happen. That's when the administration needs to come in and review this. What's going on here? Is it our practice? Is it our procedure? Is it a virus? Is, is there it, a student who isn't trained, obviously, effectively? Right. Or is it a rogue nurse or exactly. doctor? The question is, do you honestly believe that the hospital was protecting Letby? Yes, but I think they were more protecting themselves. It was a combination, you think? Well, yes, yes, because in order to protect Letby, they're protecting themselves from litigation, from a bad reputation, yeah. and it all boils down to money. Exactly. Following a year-long investigation, Operation Hummingbird focused on a total of 17 deaths 
and near-fatal collapses of the premature babies in the neonatal unit of the Countess of Chester Hospital. Therefore, on July 3, 2018, this led to the arrest of Lucy Lebby, who was subsequently charged with murdering seven babies and attempting to murder 10 others between June 2015 and June 2016. After Letby's arrest, the police searched her home in Chester, which led to the investigation being expanded to include Liverpool Women's Hospital, where Letby had also previously worked. On July 6, 2018, Letby was released on bail as the police continued their inquiries and had to take time to review the large amount of document evidence found in Letby's home. In her diaries, they found what appeared to be a code of colored asterisks that marked significant events in the investigation. These included the notorious post-it note confessions, along with finding papers under her bed. Lucy Letby was rearrested on June 10, 2019, and again on November 10, 2020, on suspicion of eight cases of murder and nine cases of attempted murder. She was bailed in 2019 originally, as more time was needed to gather evidence, and the police had identified three additional cases of attempted murder by then, and needed to question Letby even further. The complexities of this case continued to grow, and it is believed that detectives also wanted to investigate whether Letby had written anything about the case while she was under investigation in 2018. So ironically, time was now working in their favor. Finally, on November 11, 2020, Letby was again arrested and charged with eight counts of murder and 10 counts of attempted murder. She was denied bail and remanded in police custody. The Crown Prosecution Service were persuaded to approve all charges filed against Letby, while Lucy Letby denied all 22 charges against her blaming the deaths on hospital hygiene and staffing levels. And so this takes us to the trial. So two years before the trial began, Mrs. Justice Stein banned the identification of the living victims until their 18th birthdays, along with the parents wanting protection over also being identified. On October 10th, 2022, Leppy's trial began at Manchester Crown Court, presided by Mr. Justice Goss. She pleaded not guilty to seven counts of murder and 15 counts of attempted murder. Leppy's parents, along with parents of the victims, were present. Leppy's defense lawyers stated that Leppy was a dedicated nurse in a system which has failed, that the prosecution was driven by the assumption that someone was doing deliberate harm combined with the coincidence on certain occasions of Miss Leppy's presence, and that there had been instead a massive failure of care in a busy hospital neonatal unit far too great to blame on one person. But while the prosecution, on the other hand, claimed direct malevolent intent by the hands of Leppy, the trial would go for a total of nine months with texts and conversations and numerous witnesses being scrutinized. One notable conversation was between a coworker at Countess of Chester Hospital, where Leppy said, quote, it's always me when it happens. The prosecution showed a post-it note written by Leppy on the fourth day of trial, in which read, I am evil, I did this, and admitted that she killed them on purpose because she could not take care of them. She also wrote, I killed them, and I'll never marry or have children. I'll never know what it's like to have a family. The defense claimed that the notes were, quote, 
the distressed expression of a young woman in fear and despair when she understands the seriousness of what's being accused of her in the moment to herself and said that Lepi had written it when she was facing employment problems, including a complaint process with the NHS Trust. The court also saw several other notes from Lepi, two of which asked, how has this happened? What process had led this to the current situation? What accusations have been made and by who? Do they have written proof to back up their statements? And I haven't done anything wrong and they have no evidence, so why do I have to hide away? On the final months before the trial ended, Lepi testified in the court in May of 2023, crying and saying she was made to feel as though she was unskilled, but meant no harm. When questioned why she wrote the, I am evil, I did this, Lepi said, I thought at the time that I've done something wrong, I must be such a wicked, terrible person. I'd somehow been unqualified and had done something wrong, which had harmed those babies. And then on July 10th, 2023, the trial reached a close and the jury was sent to deliberate with the verdict returning on August 8th. Letby was found guilty of seven counts of murder of seven babies. She killed them by injecting them with air, overfeeding them, poisoning them with insulin, and assaulting them with medical tools. In the hands of Letby, insulin, air, and milk became weapons. She has killed more children than any other serial killer in modern British history. She was sentenced on August 21, 2023, with a whole life order, equating to a minimum term of 36 years, the most severe under English law. And that is severe for the UK. It is, yeah. Mr. Justice Goss was quoted saying to Lepi, quote, A cruel, calculated, and cynical campaign of child murder involving the smallest and most vulnerable of children. There was a deep malevolence bordering on sadism. You have no remorse. There are no mitigating factors. The offenses are sufficient severity to require a whole life order, unquote. When I read that quote, it gives me like goosebumps. Yeah, I saw that video when he was sentencing her. And that was, yeah. But I think the only part I disagreed with him is when he said bordering on sadism. It was sadistic. Yeah, I agree. So give us a, what are some of the updates on the case? These cases involving serial killers are never just simple trials. I wish they were, but they can span decades. And there's always new victims to be discovered, new trials and money that has to be placed. So just pray for the families and what they will have to endure, ones who still don't know that their child was murdered, just to mm -hmm. kind of acknowledge that. And then we should talk about the appeals that have occurred. The Court of Appeal Criminal Division confirmed that Lepi had lodged an appeal against all her convictions and is scheduled for a retrial on June 10th, 2024. That really shocked me yeah. when I saw that. So she is scheduled for a retrial. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly how the UK's laws unfold here that if everybody is allowed to some degree an appeal. Yeah, and if anybody in the UK knows, let us know because yeah. we don't know. I guess there are a small number of her friends and former colleagues have continued to believe in Lepi's innocence along with verdict conspiracy theories that have circulated on the internet placing doubt. And I've heard a lot of people, yeah, they believe her to be innocent. You know, we like to look at both sides of everything. Do you believe her that she could be innocent? You know, yeah, it's true. If you guys don't know how Diana and I always look at cases, we always try honestly remain as neutral as possible, if that's possible, but we try. And so I did kind of look at it thinking, well, how 
do we know that Lepi possibly wasn't framed? I think it's pretty clear to see that between the transitions of her day shift to the night shift. Exactly. And to say that she also had markings in her own household that showed she was aware of these specific dates. And in some way, it led the investigators to follow the breadcrumbs for her convictions. And that's really key right there is when she's on duty, the deaths increase. When she's not on duty, the deaths decrease. (laughs) Exactly. And, And this is how I think about it, too. If you were to ask me this question before the trial and without knowing the evidence, and the jury had to pour through tons of evidence, that's why it took them weeks to even come up with their decision. I would say yes, because I think every defendant has the presumption of innocence. But this went through trial. They had to look at all the evidence. Yeah. They really did their research. You know, I mean, they really looked it over. And I agree with the jury. Yeah. They made their decision. She I, is guilty. I think this is, to be honest, I don't really get angry at the conspiracy aspects of things too often. I'm relatively, that's not my world. But this one angered me. I was like, you guys just can't take things that and are not in your sphere and interfere and cause doubt. Because now look at this. There's an actual appeal here. Well, it's the power of media. (laughs) Yeah, the power of the media, the power of persuasion. We have gotten into this too many times. Yes. As humans, we always ask the question, why? How could a seemingly young and naive, innocent-looking NICU nurse be responsible for preying on the most innocent? We compare what a serial killer in culture looks like and confuse ourselves with what evil is supposed to look like. When we forget that evil is cunning and meant to destroy, and it really has no look to it. Which takes us to the questions for Letby. Why commit murder? So what are some of the possible theories here? Yeah, taking into account kind of everything, okay? I don't want to sit here just pulling apart all the other serial killers like Ted Bundy and why, you know, people say porn addiction was Ted Bundy's main reason or whatever, okay? Jeffrey Dahmer, it was anger of being homosexual and those things, okay? For Letby, the possibilities for her was she could have suffered from a disorder known as Munchausen by proxy. And Munchausen syndrome by proxy is a condition in which a caregiver creates the appearance of health problems in another person, typically their child. And usually we see it in moms caring for their children, but we can also see it in a caregiver situation. Yes. Or she could have a psychological disorder known as hero syndrome which is a disorder of the mind that causes a person to seek recognition for heroism, especially by creating a harmful situation in which they can resolve, like making a person sick and then bringing them back to life. Yeah, being the one who has the magic And then you get all the praise and the glory and like, oh, you're such an awesome person. Thank you. Exactly. And then the other one would be a God complex, which is the unshakable belief characterized by consistently inflated feelings of personal ability, privilege, or even infallibility. And I don't necessarily see that in Lepi at all. No, but it's a theory. We don't know her personally. Exactly. Or there's this. She wanted attention and sympathy of a married co-worker. That doctor that she was communicating with. We didn't actually post that information, but there was supposed texts that were occurring with the co-worker. There was nothing actually happening, but supposedly she wanted his attention. Some of the texts that, that I heard between them, it did seem like he played on it. She kind of seemed like she had almost like schoolgirl. A nurse crush. Yeah, nurse yeah. crush, you know. She seems very immature. I mean, I think we are forgetting that she is actually quite young. In How this. old is she? 
she was in her 20s. I mean, she was fresh out of graduating. But still, not, she, I'm talking about very, very immature mentally. I don't think we're going to like her. Or emotionally. <laughs> I don't think we're going to like her. Or she was a serial killer. Yeah, that's and the obvious. She is. <laughs> yeah, that's the obvious answer. When we say she was a serial killer, we mean she was just sadistic. That who knows the complexities behind why she chose what she did. So I looked up sadism and we discussed sadism in our previous episode of that trucker roads. It's when a person derives pleasure, especially sexual pleasure, from inflicting pain and suffering to others. And I'm kind of curious, did Lucy ever have a romantic relationship? Did we ever find out in her past? Did she have boyfriends? There was nothing I could find to link anyone to her. And to be honest, I wouldn't have fixated on anybody who was linked with her because I don't think it's that important. Well, what I mean by that is, has she ever had a sexual relationship, I guess? You know, yeah. she's in her 20s. We couldn't find anything that really showed that she even had a sexual relationship. I'm wondering if she derived sexual pleasure from inflicting pain to these babies. I know it sounds really weird, but there's been cases where people have derived sexual pleasure from killing other people. I'm saying she's, yeah, she's categorized as a serial killer. Mm -hmm. So what I know of a serial killer isn't going to be associated with kind thoughts and the giving them these exceptions. We're looking at the face of darkness here. There's possibilities. We don't really know. It's, again, kind of a possibility. Well, there's one more thing. So, because I was thinking about this last night, and what was she trying to achieve by murdering babies? Because a serial killer, always they're always trying to achieve some goal. We don't understand what that goal is, really, yeah. but they're always trying to achieve a goal. And I can't help but think of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs, and he's talking to Clarice, the FBI agent, and... He asked this question, what does he serve by killing about the serial killer? And he says he covets. And how do we begin to covet? We begin to covet what we see every day. Mm -hmm. She sees these babies every day. What is coveting is when we want something that one does not have and being envious of those who do possess it. And what did Lucy say in her diary? I'll never marry or have children. I'll never know what it's like to have a family. There was right. something in her psyche that she couldn't get intimate with somebody on a real level. Possibly. I think you're possibly unlocking a lot of things that I think will forever remain private between Leppy's, you know, psychologist and her. Yeah. But man, it's there's something along that lines, I agree. There is another case that I think you need to look into and maybe you might want to cover. And it's the case of this American serial killer, Janine Jones, who is also a nurse. And they believe she killed upwards to 60 babies between 1970-1980. She poisoned them with succinylcholine, mm. which is a drug that is used in general anesthesia that causes temporary paralysis and it makes you unable to breathe. They use it in general anesthesia under very controlled conditions, obviously. But these kids, you're alive yeah. and you know what's going on. You just can't move. Yeah. And so what happens is that when given enough of this drug, it causes cardiac arrest. She was only convicted of two because the hospital, again, destroyed all the records to prevent being sued. And then they fired her. That one hospital fired her. They knew something was up, but they fired her. So she went to work for another hospital and started killing again. So anyways, in 1985, she was convicted and given a total of 99 years in prison. But due to overcrowding, she was going to be released in 2018. 
But <laughs> are you serious? Yeah, but the DA had kind of an ace up his sleeve. I think they were saving some murder charges here. Good, yeah. Okay, so they charged her with another murder of an 11 month old child. So she wound up making a plea deal, it's now serving life. Today she's about 73 years old. Anyways, I thought maybe this is another serial killer case. This one's really, I mean, they're all messed up, but this one too, along the same lines as Lucy Leppe. Yeah, Lucy Leppe, honestly, this was the first serial killer that I actually had to write. And honestly, I I need a break from... From serial killing? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think so. It does Um, take a lot out of you. Yeah, so Diane wrote the Robert Rhodes one, and she needed a break from that. This is why we don't do serial killers that often. They're just mentally taxing and hard to do. But we do them because we know it's what cries out. It's important to acknowledge. What is the difference between female and male serial killers? Males are more likely to kill a stranger. Females are more likely to kill someone they know. One theory is that males have a hunter mindset, while females are gatherers and blend with society. Male and female weapons of choice and method of kill is not specified. On August 18, 2023, Letby was removed from the Register of Nursing and Midwifery Council and no longer can practice. The police and continual investigation of Operation Hummingbird continues to review suspicious incidents at the Countess of Chester Hospital involving 30 more infants. They are in the process of reviewing over 4,000 children. On October 4, 2023, Chester Consaberry also announced an investigation into corporate manslaughter at the Countess of Chester Hospital. And God, I hope so. There is no words to describe the pain and loss of losing a child. These parents didn't just lose their child from natural birth or medical errors, which creates its own ever-present pain, but were the voiceless victims of a serial killer. The deception they must feel to know that their child would be in their arms if it wasn't for this monster, is something, in my opinion, could have been prevented. Thank you for listening. Yeah, we thank you guys for listening. This was definitely one of the hardest cases I've had to... And I must say, awesome research. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you guys. Bye. Thank you guys. Bye-bye.